0: Chickman Namoy from your boy in Hanoi. Chickman Namoy, spread the joy. Chickman Namoy, cap moy noy. Tet, tet, tet denzo.
1: Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo Pacific and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Auslan, and today we are honored to be joined by the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Daniel J. Crittenbrink. Dan to his friends. Uh, Dan Crittenbrink previously served as the U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam from 2017 to 2021. He was also Senior Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, in addition to multiple other overseas tours mostly in Asia, though in other places as well. Dan is a Nebraska native, uh, and he has a master's from the University of Virginia and a bachelor's degree from the University of Nebraska at Kearney. So Assistant Secretary Dan Crittenbrink, welcome to the Pacific Century.
0: Hello, Dr. Oslin, Misha, what an honor to be with you here today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to uh, to think big thoughts here uh, on Well. this Tuesday morning.
1: <laughs> You've come to the wrong place for big thoughts. I mean, we, we, we might be able to squeeze out some very small thoughts, but it is a busy week and uh, I particularly appreciate you coming. Uh, with everything going on. So let's, let's launch into it. We've got a whole host of stuff to talk about that. You are uh, probably the best placed person in the government to, uh, to work with us on. So number one.
0: Well, I don't know about that. Let me just say honor to be with you this morning. And it's a tremendous honor to have this, uh, this position. I'm a career foreign service officer, as you know, and to be able to, uh, you know, work in a position to help shape and implement our our policy and our strategies in the Indo-Pacific is truly the honor of a lifetime. Look forward to our conversation today.
1: Well, thanks again, and and again, someone with your with your depth and breadth of experience, really, to to be able to talk about all the things that are happening, including uh, a raft of new leaders in the Indo-Pacific, and that's where I'd like to start. Great sure. So we just had an election in the Philippines, a very important election. The new president will be Ferdinand Marcos Jr. who goes by Bong Bong. So Bong Bong Marcos. Um, If you are of a certain age, like me when I was in college, you remember and watched on TV the overthrow of his father, Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator, uh, that was in 1986. Uh, obviously, we have had a fraught relationship with the Philippines under current President Duterte. Um, President to be president-elect Marcos actually was running under or with Duterte's party. So he is a member of Duterte's party, but he is of course the scion of the Marcos dynasty. So um, what do we expect from uh, the new president, President Marcos and, and how will that affect our alliance? And will he be as focused or as leaning towards China as it seemed that President Duterte was?
0: Well, Misha, thank you. Let let me start by saying, um, when I try to summarize Biden-Harris administration's uh, approach to the Indo-Pacific, I usually uh, describe it by using just one phrase, allies, partners and friends, because I think um, building the collective capacity of our allies and partners in the region uh ensuring that we um work together with allies and partners to defend the rules-based order which we believe is uh, is currently under threat really is the, the, the center of our entire approach to the region so uh, our five treaty allies uh really are our primary focus in the region and certainly the philippines is one of our key treaty allies uh again it, it is a, a true point of emphasis for us in the region um we welcome uh, the election of uh, president-elect marcos i think you may have seen on may 11 that president biden uh, spoke to him i believe president biden was the first world leader uh, to call president-elect marcos uh, my understanding is they had a, a very productive very positive conversation the president stated how much he looks forward to working with president-elect marcos to continue to strengthen and build out our our vitally important alliance we think again our alliance is uh, with philippines and with our other four allies in the region really are irreplaceable and foundational so i think we're optimistic for the future um uh we do want to give uh, the new president elect some space to actually be inaugurated and and begin and we look forward to continuing to work uh, over these final weeks with president duterte and his team but uh look i would just say misha that um we continue to cooperate very very closely with our Filipino allies on a whole range of issues, certainly particularly on security issues and maritime issues in the South China Sea, where we have long standing shared concerns about uh, PRC assertiveness and aggressiveness and their unlawful claims there. But look, we, we've been uh, friends, partners and allies for decades, and I think we'll continue to build on that history and our shared values. And again, look forward to working with uh, with the president elect.
1: Is he a populist like Duterte is? Meaning, do you have worries? Obviously, the um, relations between the U.S. and the Philippines started getting difficult. That's a diplomatic way to put it. They started getting difficult under the Obama administration. Um, uh, There were ups and downs during the Trump administration. Of course, you were out in the region as ambassador to Vietnam at that time, so you probably saw it a little bit more closely than others. Um, Is he a populist? Are we we worried that these policies are going to continue or, or will that create problems for us?
0: Well, uh, again, Misha, I want to give the president-elect all all of the space to uh, uh, determine uh, exactly how he wants to approach matters. Here's what I'm confident of. I'm confident that our alliance with the Philippines is enduring. Uh, I'm confident that our many shared interests and values and and our shared uh, history is going to continue to propel uh, our relationship forward. So again, we're, we're very optimistic about the future and we look forward to working with the president elect and his team. And I would say, look, even even over uh, The last several years. Sure, there have been uh, challenges, but we've also done many great things uh, together. And I think the cooperation that's at the center of alliance uh, of our alliance has continued um, uh, for the last few years and has really intensified over over the last uh, couple of years. So we look forward to continuing that trend and that momentum, uh, but I, I can guarantee you, we're gonna continue to place tremendous emphasis on our alliance with the Philippines. We have great respect for our Filipino friends. Um, channels of communication uh, are open, uh, very close and and active. And so uh, again, we're quite optimistic uh, about the future.
1: And one last Philippines question before we move on. Um, uh, obviously, under Duterte, um, the Philippines was moving closer to China. At, at certain times, there was obviously a lot of tension in that relationship, and yet there would be moments of of what seemed uh, like a, a very close uh, close alignment. Um, early readouts. Do you get any sense on on where President-elect Marcos will go? Will he continue? Uh, will he be pro-China? Will he continue a pro-China tilt? Do we have? confidence that we're going to, you know, that the our alliance will become primary in Philippine foreign policy?
0: Well, Misha, here, here's what I'm confident of. I'm confident uh, of the fact that our uh, Filipino allies will know best how to determine their national interests. Uh, I'm also confident that the United States of America is going to continue uh, to be uh, the Philippines' reliable, consistent, strong, and dependable ally and partner. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the president wanted to call president like Marcos uh, so uh, early just to make that clear. And, and I think from that perspective, again, uh, I remain quite uh, optimistic about the future. Um, we we always say that we don't ask our partners in the region, uh, even our closest allies to quote unquote, choose. You know, you have to deal only with the United States, you have to deal only with China. That That's not what we're about. That's not the Um, the position that we wanna put our partners in. Rather, what we wanna do is we wanna make clear what we proactively and affirmatively stand for. Uh, And then we also want to continue to build the capacity of our partners, including our Filipino allies, uh, to be able to make their own sovereign decisions free of coercion uh, and to advance their national interest in the way uh, that they see fit. I'm quite confident in that approach uh, and I'm I'm quite confident uh, going forward that uh, allies like the Philippines and other partners in the region, uh, they, they're sending a very strong demand signal for US engagement. In fact, I would argue for increased US engagement. Uh, and I think uh, partners in the region, they, they have their own important complex relationships with China and that's fine, but they also have deep concerns. And certainly uh, I would say one of our primary concerns one of the issues we're tracking most closely is China's ongoing aggressive behavior in the South China Sea including uh, behavior and claims many of which are uh, un- illegal and have no basis in international law uh, and uh, that's something I think that we see eye to eye uh, on with our Filipino friends.
1: So let's shift north a little bit to maybe uh, sure. uh, an easier ally I know you wouldn't say that but you know that is a difference by the way I mean the optimism and the confidence of a professional, diplomat like yourself versus the eternal pessimism of a historian like me. I like the balance, balance <laughs> us out here on the podcast. It's really important. You uh, should
0: know. I appreciate no, it. Look, one of the reasons why I wanted to spend some time with you is, and I mean this very sincerely, look, we, we really benefit from these conversations. And when we have uh, world-class experts like yourself, whether it's in academia or the media. Um, You know, it's great that you keep us honest, that you force us to think, see things from a new angle. So no, I I have tremendous respect for, for you and what you do. And I appreciate the conversation. But yeah, I I hope my confidence and optimism shows through. Um, I I have, uh, look, I have tremendous confidence that uh, in the long run, when you think about who we are as Americans, what we stand for, the values and the principles and the interests that we stand for, the capabilities that we have, uh, buttressed by our long history of association with our allies, partners, and friends across the region. Uh, I'm I'm quite confident and optimistic how this is gonna turn out. And and the reason why we're so focused on it, if I can add, Misha, is we are absolutely convinced and the president has made clear that uh, America's future security and prosperity is going to be dependent on what happens in the Indo-Pacific. It's, it's really that simple. We think that the history of the 21st century is largely going to be written in the Indo-Pacific. We have to get this right. Uh, it's in our national in- interest. It's in the interest of the American people. And uh, But again, I have great confidence and optimism about uh, our approach and how that's going to work out.
1: Well, it's 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 great uh, again to hear you to say it. I, you're you're too kind. By the way, uh, regular listeners of this podcast will be thinking, who is he talking about? Because there's there's no expert here that that's that's moderating this. You're the expert, so let's move north a little bit and actually to another ally, one that in uh, in some ways uh, I, I don't want to say closer, but one that we have almost a unique. Uh, alliance relationship with, and that of course is South Korea, who, which also has a new president. The president-elect will be have a president, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, in May, um, and that is President Yun. Uh, president Yun is is a political novice. Uh, was a prosecutor, never ran for political office before, is not a career politician um he is on the conservative side of the spectrum he had very narrow victory extremely narrow victory some some things of like what we're getting used to here in the states of a very divided electorate but he is signaled very strongly his interest in uh, improving relations with Japan, which is critical for us, uh, also improving relations with us, uh, and uh, and somewhat maybe a more open question on where he'll go with North Korea. So what can you tell us about what we should be expecting, what we're hoping, and what the Biden administration is hoping from President, soon to be President Yoon in South Korea?
0: Well, Misha, thank you very much. And and if I'm not mistaken, um, yeah, President Yoon, of course, uh, uh, won the the South Korean election and was just uh, just inaugurated. Uh, the second gentleman uh, led the U.S. Uh, delegation to the inauguration. And I know that oh. uh, you know President Biden is is very much looking forward to his trip uh, to the region in coming days. Uh, I think you've seen the announcement: the president will be in in Seoul and Tokyo. And I I, I won't get ahead of the White House and what further uh the president and national security advisor and others will say about the trip but i I do know how much the president is looking forward to that and and here is is another place misha where i would say we we really have you know no, no better or no closer ally than the republic of korea you you think about the uh again the enduring strength of our alliance ties um, uh, really born you know in the crucible of, of, of war um, and continuing all these many decades and y- you look uh, for example Uh, last year when then President Moon Jae-in came to the United States as the second world leader to visit President Biden in the White House. You look at the joint vision statement that we released at this time, it's really stunning in terms of the breadth and depth of the issues on which the United States and Republic of Korea are aligned uh, and and that we're working on for our benefit and the benefit of peoples in the region and the world. And I think what we anticipate Misha is that um, that momentum will only continue Uh, under President Yoon, and and I'm quite optimistic that here again, our alliance with the Republic of Korea will only further strengthen uh, and deepen. You know, I, I had, again, one of the reasons why it's such a privilege to have this job, I had the honor of traveling out to Seoul uh, last fall for my first trip to the region as assistant secretary, I believe it was in October. Um, but whenever it was, I, I had the honor of meeting, uh, both the presidential candidates at the time, including then presidential candidate Yoon, and he was kind enough to, to spend some time with me and I came away, uh, deeply impressed. I think what, what he said to me in that meeting and what you saw in the campaign and what he said since his election and inauguration is that this, Uh, is a leader who's firmly committed uh, to the U.S.-ROK alliance. Uh, I think we've been quite impressed by um, his stated desire, again, to work closely with the United States, not just on uh, Korean Peninsula issues, but on issues related uh, to the broader region and globally. And then uh, we're quite hopeful as well, as you noted, uh, I think he's already had some significant outreach to Prime Minister Kishida in Japan and has stated his desire to make progress there. And so we're, we're quite uh, hopeful about that as well. I mean, in, in a nutshell, the United States of America and the American people are more uh, secure and prosperous when our two closest treaty allies uh, in Northeast Asia have a productive working relationship. And so uh, we're hopeful there uh, as well. Um, I would also add that um, the new uh, South Korean foreign minister Park Jin uh, led a delegation here prior to the inauguration and um, uh, I and others here in Washington had a chance to sit down and have extensive conversations with him as well. Uh, him as well. So let, let me just reiterate, very hopeful. Uh, very optimistic about um, our future cooperation with the Republic of Korea. Maybe a final point. It's um, been a lot of talk in recent years about uh, quote unquote global Korea and uh, been quite struck by that. Korea has a lot to offer, not just to the United States, but to the region and the world. And we're very supportive uh, of seeing Korea play that, um, that very important role regionally and globally as well.
1: Yeah, so we obviously uh, I have to do an editorial note, which uh, I always have to do on this podcast. I actually forgot it was May. Honestly, I I, I knew he was getting inaugurated in May. I forgot. Uh, I it was know.
0: May. I know exactly what it's like to be in the vortex when you get in, in work. Yeah, no, uh, really, it was it was quite exciting that uh, the second gentleman
1: and and that was uh, a week ago. It was uh, May tenth.
0: Labor. I think that was a week ago. Yeah, yeah and uh, somebody from my team as well Great. went out there and again came back very impressed uh, by the new new president. And, um, but but again, uh, I think the point I'm trying to make is that our alliance with the Republic of Korea is enduring, uh, it transcends politics in any one party. We of course uh, uh, had a very productive uh, relationship with uh, uh, former President Moon Jae-in, but, uh, but again, we're off to a fantastic start with President Yoon, very optimistic, very confident about uh, our future work together. And I think uh, that will come through loud and clear during uh, President Biden's uh, trip in just the next few days.
1: Right. So he, so the president is going. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense on uh, what would we believe new President Yoon is, uh, what is North Korea policy is going to be? Obviously, former President Moon uh, pushed, you know, a, a really a sort of unprecedented engagement, both between the North and the South, but also to, in many ways, push the United States into high-level direct uh, negotiations that took place under the Trump administration with the North. Um, is there more hesitancy that, that you think uh, is coming from the UN? Not, I don't want to say hesitancy and they're brand new, but what, what are you reading from how they're going to approach North Korea, which has been conducting uh, more rocket tests lately? Um, they seem to be popping up a little bit more. Of course, now there seems to be a COVID outbreak. Uh, so the, it, it's a tense time on the peninsula. How, what's your assessment of where UN is going to go with North Korea?
0: Sure. Well, no, thank you, Michelle. Look, I, I, I don't want to speak uh, for the President Yoon administration. I would just say that um, among all the many issues that we discuss and on which we cooperate closely with our uh, Korean allies, obviously, North Korea is, is one of the most important. Um, and that's been the case for decades. And, you know, I say, unfortunately, that will have to be the case going forward because I think the situation uh, in the North um, is deeply concerning and, and uh, is only becoming more so. Uh, I think Washington and Seoul, and I know this is the case under President Yoon as well, we are deeply concerned uh, about the uh, multiple uh, missile launches and tests that we've seen this year. Uh, we're concerned that North Korea may take uh, other destabilizing steps. We continue to signal, um, first and foremost, our ironclad security guarantees to our treaty allies, the Republic of Korea and Japan. We've made clear that we will continue to take steps to counter the threat posed by North Korea's missile uh, and, and nuclear programs. Uh, but we've also signaled uh, that we are um, we are open uh, to diplomacy. Um, to explore uh, a better path uh, uh, forward. Um, But of course, to date, uh, North Korea has signaled no no willingness to explore that path uh, with us. So we'll continue to take steps. We'll remain in lockstep with uh, our Korean and Japanese allies and others, but we'll continue to take steps um, uh, to counter the threat again uh, posed by North Korea and uh, our friends in Seoul and Tokyo and elsewhere in the region should have no doubt uh, about that.
1: So in in the interest of time, I'd love to talk more about uh, about Korea, um, but in the interest of time, let's jump down south because we have yet another potential leadership change, and that's also with a critical ally, and that's going to be in Australia. Australia is having an election this week. Um, The current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, of the liberal party that's the conservatives in Australia is trailing in the polls so seems to be solidifying his position a little bit um and the um, labor party a more progressive the labor party um, uh, candidate uh, is uh, it has the potential of, um, of of winning so what would be uh, the implications do you think how how you know what's your sense do you, do you think the uh prime minister morrison is going to carry uh, pull it out or do you think um uh we're going to see a new uh, potentially progressive uh leadership in australia and what will that mean for our alliance and what will it mean for the quad we're going to talk a little bit more about the quad later sure
0: well uh misha i i, I don't know and um not in the business of trying to predict uh, elections whether it's uh, in australia or anywhere else but i i would note uh, it's really encouraging to me that we're having this conversation about some of our closest treaty allies in the region. And and they're all coming out of democratic elections. And I think it, it just speaks to, you know why is it that these countries are, are among our, our closest allies and partners? Because we share not just interests and a history together, but we share uh, obviously many important values, including our commitment to democracy. Look, when, when I talk with our Australian friends, I had the chance just yesterday to talk to my uh, Australian counterpart. Uh, I noted to them that, uh, you know, the the upcoming election, which is really a celebration of, of Australian democracy, is something that uh, we're watching closely. But we've made very clear that our alliance with Australia uh, transcends politics in any one party. We very much look forward. Uh, to working closely with whomever uh, the Australian people select and we're confident uh, that whomever the Australian people uh, selected again our alliance will endure, and we'll continue to work closely to advance our shared interests and values with uh, with our Australian partners going forward. Uh, I would note that um, in February, had the honor of traveling with uh, Secretary Blinken uh, to Australia as part of a larger trip to the region and we went there for. Uh, uh, quad foreign ministerial uh, that Secretary Blinken uh, participated in and that our sea allies hosted. And it was a tremendous honor to be there. Uh, Highlighted not just the strength of the quad, but really bilaterally as well, the the enduring strength of our uh, alliance with Australia. No better ally, no better friend. We fought shoulder to shoulder in every conflict over the last century. And it's quite extraordinary just how uh aligned we are strategically uh, and in terms of our interests uh, and values and while we were there of course we had fantastic meetings uh with uh with uh with the Prime Minister, uh, with Prime Minister Morrison, with Foreign Minister Payne, and others. But as we always do when we visit our democratic partners around uh, uh, the region, we had a chance to meet with the opposition as well. And, and again, we we came away uh, impressed and, and confident that uh, no matter who wins this election, uh, the U.S.-Australia alliance will endure and strengthen going
1: forward. It'll be very interesting to. Um... Uh, to see what happens, obviously, if, if if there is a change in in government, if that will indicate also a change uh, in uh, policy or relations with China, which for Australia has been extremely difficult over the past uh, several years, and and I would uh, probably expect not, but uh, but it'll be uh, interesting to see. Um,
0: yeah, sure. The, the one thing I mm-hmm. would say, and again, the reason why we, you know, why why I said what I said just a moment ago is is through the meetings that we had both with. Uh, the current government and opposition leader Albanese and the shadow foreign <laughs> minister, uh, Wong and others. You know, I think we came away confident that uh, whomever the Australian people uh, select, uh, you know, uh, all sides are committed to the alliance and, and to working uh, closely together to continue to advance our shared interests. And, and certainly China will be, uh, I would argue foremost amongst them. We'll let our Australian friends speak for themselves, but there's no doubt that um, amongst the concerns that we have with PRC behavior it's the the use of coercion to advance uh, you know on the part of Beijing to advance its national interests as it defines them that i think is probably most concerning to us and many of our partners and certainly australia has been subject to that but so have many other partners and friends uh, around the region it's it's deeply concerning
1: so let's talk about, uh, if we're talking about coercion and we're talking about China, um, then perhaps at the top of the list is Taiwan. Um, last week, the uh, State Department released a fact sheet. For those who are not familiar uh, with the fact sheets, they are sort of a, a, a general but, but top-level statement of uh, the, the, the U.S. policy and, and how the U.S. views any particular Country, I don't know if we do fact sheets for every single country, but we obviously do them for critical countries and and our, our critical yeah, I allies. Should, I
0: think we do uh, we do fact sheets on uh, on just about every uh, every partner with whom we have a, a relationship out
1: there. So we had so one was released last week on Taiwan, and it was significant. It was different. Uh, it was different from uh, prior fact sheets, including those uh, that that the the Trump administration had put out. Uh, And it was unabashed in its uh, support for the relationship uh, with Taiwan, the role that Taiwan plays as a critical partner for the U.S. It changed some of the language. Uh, It dropped a line that had been in there for a long time on the U.S. opposing Taiwanese independence. Uh, It dropped the line that uh, the, the, the common Phrase that we've used for a long time. The U.S. recognizes China's position that there is one government of China. Instead, it simply reiterated the agreements that we have made, such as the um, uh, the the three communiques, the six assurances, and the like. So, can you tell us a little bit about what what's changed now? What how has this? Become such a a sort of vocally forthright approach towards Taiwan. What has the Chinese response been, and and was there any opposition inside government to changing the fact sheet so dramatically?
0: Well, uh, Misha, thanks thanks for this question as well. Always delighted to have an opportunity to talk about uh, Taiwan and, and cross strait issues. I, I think the first point that I should uh, emphasize. I know there there was some. Uh, some press coverage of uh, of this issue. Look, there's, there's been absolutely no change to America's one China policy. And again, it's our US one China policy, which is, of course, different from uh, the PRC's one China principle and America's long standing one China policy is is based on the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques and the six assurances to Taiwan. So nothing has changed uh, about that. Uh, If you go back and you look at uh, the testimony uh, that I delivered together with my good friend, Assistant Secretary of Defense, Eli Ratner, last fall in front of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or if you you think back to uh, the separate uh, closed door briefing that we gave to the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee on this same subject earlier this year, We've made clear that there's been no change to America's one China policy. There's been no change to uh, the framework that we use to approach and, and manage these issues. Uh, I think we have all the tools that we need. That uh, Our focus needs to be uh, continuing to meet our obligations uh, under the Taiwan Relations Act, which as you know, Misha, um, states that the United States will ensure uh, that Taiwan is able to maintain a sufficient self-defense uh, capability. So our focus is on deterrence, it's on uh, stability, it's, it's on peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, maintenance of the, uh, the status quo uh, across the Strait. And I would argue that it's our approach and these policies that have helped us maintain peace and stability uh, across the Strait uh, for, for the last 50 years what has changed and what is deeply concerning um, is a host of of Chinese actions designed to uh, put pressure uh, on Taiwan. And uh, those are the actions that I would focus on and would ask you and other friends to focus on. Uh, That's what is concerning uh, to us. But there's been no change Uh, To our formal one China policy in any way. Uh, The fact sheet was uh, updated and we do that uh, periodically, but um, again, there's been no no change to our fundamental one China policy.
1: I I think it it does. And I I think for those uh, who support Taiwan, which, you know, certainly most of the people that I know uh, in DC and most of the folks working on Asia. not only welcomed the fact sheet uh, and were were heartened by it, but it, it it seems I think to many that the the administration is taking some significant steps to norm even more the idea of Taiwan being a a player and an actor uh, in the region and 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 beyond the region. I think that may have started in some ways with. Um, the COVID uh, pandemic, when we saw how well that the Taiwanese dealt with it, and and, and how open they were, and uh, supportive of of international uh, the, the the international institutions have worked. Um, uh, but even before that, there had been uh, moves, obviously a lot of moves by the Trump administration, starting with the the, the phone call between uh, then President-elect Trump and uh, President Tsai Ing-wen of of Taiwan, uh, the first ever. Um, but even beyond that, it seems that the, the the U.S. and and the administration now is is pushing for Taiwan to be more uh, more normalized as a part of the international community. Is that a fair assessment? And, and if so, uh, what's next? You know, what is it getting it yeah. into the WHO? Is it getting it into uh, Red Cross? I and mean, what, what what would you like to see?
0: Yeah, Misha. I guess what I would say is again, I'll just reiterate a bit of what I said before, and then respond more directly to what you said. Again, what is our focus? Our focus is on. Uh, cross-strait peace and stability. It's on maintenance of that status quo that we would argue has maintained peace and stability for decades. And, and it's again, continuing to focus uh, our policy as we always have on um, making sure we're assisting Taiwan to maintain that sufficient self-defense uh, capacity. So our, uh, our relationship with Taiwan is an unofficial one but it's a very important, I would say vitally important very robust one. Uh, Taiwan is a tremendous democratic partner. It has a lot to offer to the region and to the world. And I think that is something that we have uh, that we probably have highlighted uh, a a bit more. Uh, um, I think that again, that doesn't doesn't signify uh, any change in our uh, official approach uh, to these issues. I think it signifies uh really the extent to which uh taiwan has developed its capabilities and proven uh as you noted whether it's in the in the medical field or or, or other fields or quite frankly its central role in the global economy uh that taiwan has demonstrated what an, what an important partner uh it is so we are focused on that we do talk about making sure that we are able to expand and uh, maintain Taiwan's so-called international space, so that Taiwan can play a productive role uh, in the international community. And our position is that um, you know Taiwan should have uh, a productive role. Uh, in, in uh, should have a formal role in organizations that don't require statehood and and in those that do uh, Taiwan should still be able uh, to play a, a, a productive if informal role again because of the great capabilities that uh, that it offers so that's what our focus is going to be and whether it's testifying in front of the Senate foreign relations committee or talking privately with our friends in Beijing we continue to underscore what America's national interests are, uh, how our policy has not changed, but how we uh, continue, uh, obviously, to have a deep interest, an abiding interest in uh, the maintenance across Strait peace and stability.
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot more. I wish we could talk uh, more about Taiwan, but time is time is ticking. I would just say that it it does seem, you know, someone who's watched this for a little bit that it it's a lot. Easier nowadays to talk about Taiwan. It seems it's a lot easier to talk about Taiwan as a partner, uh, as as a, uh, a country that that again plays a role in the Indo-Pacific, a country that has, um, you know, it's it's its own uh, important relations with other partners of ours, such as Japan. Uh, I know the the language I'm using is not the language necessarily that that the government would use, but um, but that that seems to be a change. It seems to be an extremely positive change. And, you know, speaking as a historian, I think we're going to look back and we're going to, we're going to be, I don't want to say surprised, but I think we'll be, we'll be pleased as we look at the past decade, decade and a half and see the, the development of the big questions, of course, where does it go? And hopefully, in a way that that continues to, to benefit Taiwan's Stability and security, uh, which I think is how the government would put it and others would, would you know, use different terms. So um, I'd love to talk more about it. But let's, let's move on because we, we do want to be respectful of your time. Um, let's talk about the quad. I mean, you, you did, you talked about sure. um, partnerships and you talked about, yeah. um, you know, dealing uh, both. Well, first of all, dealing with partners, friends and allies dealing with uh, countries that are not uh, friends and allies, but but with whom we have important relationships. um the Quad is going to be meeting next week. President Biden will be going on May 24th in Tokyo. This will be the second meeting of uh, the leaders uh, live. They did have a virtual meeting, um, but the That's world.
0: True. I think this is the third summit, but the second in person. The third and the
1: I'm second in summit, but the world's changed a lot, um, and events that have happened halfway around the world in Ukraine, I think, have had. Uh, A spillover effect to some degree into the quad certainly the thinking about what the quad should be doing the role the quad should be playing in a world in which we 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 face aggression and uh, we face. Uh, as you put before, the, the attempted use or the use of coercion. So first, can you give us a highlight? What's going to happen at the Quad? Um, is, is the Quad, uh, are, are you know, there have been some failures uh, in terms of vaccine diplomacy, not not as much done as, as we had hoped. Um, there's obviously splits now between three of the Quad members and India over uh, relations with Russia because of Ukraine. So can you give us a preview of what's going to happen and and more, Is the Quad still viable? Well,
0: thank you, Misha. Look, I do know how pre- how excited the president is to travel to Tokyo on May 24 for, uh, as you noted, the third uh, quad meeting, the second in-person summit uh, by our count. This is the third summit in the last 15 months. I, I think what I would say, Misha, I, I think the quad is one of the most significant developments or uh, that I've seen in my career, or rather, I should say, maybe the the further strengthening and expanding Uh, And intensification of our cooperation and the the cooperative activities we carry out together is probably one of the most significant developments that I've seen uh, in my career. Uh, I think that we're trying to demonstrate as, uh, as four leading democracies, four of the most capable democracies, that we as partners, allies, and democratic nations, that we can continue to deliver. Uh, deliver uh, in, in defense of our, uh, of our interests and our values, and deliver in terms of providing concrete and tangible outcomes uh, in the interest of all uh, across the region. So, I, I think the, the significance uh, of, of this next meeting will be as before it will be a chance for our four democracies to discuss uh, the leading issues of the day. Uh, I, I will say, Misha, reflecting on uh, the foreign minister, the Quad Foreign Ministerial in Melbourne. Uh, that I mentioned earlier, that Secretary Blinken attended and I accompanied him. I, uh, I, I would I would differ uh, and quibble a bit with your uh, description of the Quad earlier, the uh, because the phrase uh, that I use to describe the Quad, based on our interactions, uh, is is convergence. Uh, really, an amazing and I would argue unprecedented convergence of of interests and our outlooks on, on the region, how we see the region uh what we think uh, are the greatest challenges that we face in, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh also conversely, what are the most important opportunities that we need to seize together. Uh, and based on those uh discussions that uh we've had whether it's the leader level, foreign ministerial level, or in the you know the more expert level in the, the senior officials meetings that uh that I chair with my colleague Don Lu here periodically, it's it's extraordinary how unified we are. Uh, on our approaches to the region, how we intend to work going forward. So I think the uh, the strategic conversations will be very important, but the the quad leaders are also focused on making sure we achieve uh, tangible things and and I would say uh, the the quad vaccine partnership uh, is actually one of uh, I think the the best examples of, of the quad successfully working for the benefit, not just of our interests, but of the region as well. We've committed to deliver 1 billion vaccines uh, to the region. We're well on our way uh, to doing so. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, if I remember correctly, uh, I think we're about uh, halfway or beyond there. So I think that's been tremendous. But um, the other areas that you see, you know, coming out uh, of the quad foreign ministerial you look at the joint statement that we released back in February, we're working on cybersecurity, cooperation to address climate change, critical and emerging technologies, infrastructure investment, countering disinformation. Uh, We're also working to develop a quad uh, fellowship program. And and maybe one other thing I can point out, Misha, that I think is quite significant, maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as I expected it it would have. Last week, uh, President Biden hosted the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit here in Washington, D.C. It was a tremendous opportunity uh, to coordinate and advance practical cooperation with another very important set of partners, uh, in this case, um, Uh, our our nine partners who attended the summit from ASEAN. But if you look at that joint vision statement that we negotiated, um, the United States and ASEAN also highlighted the important work that we're doing uh, with other partners, including the Quad and specifically on the Quad vaccine partnership. So um, I think it goes to show that both individually, the four countries of the Quad and the Quad as an entity uh, as well. We are absolutely and firmly committed to ASEAN centrality, to cooperating with partners across the region, including in ASEAN, and again, in ways that deliver very practical benefits. So I think that's a general overview um, uh, of what the Quad leaders will be focused on. And I would anticipate that the White House and the president himself will have more to say about this in the next few days. But Uh, Truly, I I can't underscore enough. I think just how important and consequential uh, our cooperation in the in the Quad
1: is. Well, I'm I'm glad you quibbled with me. We like quibbling. Quibbling, quibbling (laughs) is good, and and we appreciate the no. But I I mean that sincerely.
0: It's and if I think you can see it come through the joint vision statements, and you'll see it in the statements of the leaders. But having sat through the foreign ministerial in Melbourne, I sincerely have never seen anything quite like it. Just stunning the extent to which, again, we are aligned, and in which our interests and our, our views on the region converge. Uh, now, of course, we're, we're four independent sovereign nations and, and uh, there, there will be some issues, including the ones that you've you've outlined on which we may have some differences. But uh, I think if you focus on uh, the Indo Pacific, which is, uh, which is where the quad is working and where our primary focus in is on, uh, again, I see a stunning convergence and alliance and uh, alignment.
1: Well, we're, we're almost out of time. I'm, I, I'd am i like to see maybe if we can squeeze you mentioned Southeast Asia and you were ambassador to yep. Vietnam, I'd like to squeeze in if we could, a final question about Vietnam, Vietnam is is uh, is a strategically critical country um, those Absolutely. of us who visited it understand the dynamism its youth its desire to play a larger role but obviously we have uh, it is a socialist republic it, there are human rights issues there are freedom of expression issues and yet if there's one country that you sort of hear over and over and over in the strategic discussions about the role that we hope it could play and that we could play with it it's Vietnam what is what is your sense of where we're going to be going forward? Uh, with Vietnam.
0: Well, Misha, thank you for asking about Vietnam. It's a subject about which I'm quite uh, passionate. Uh, I, I I agree with everything that you said. Uh, Vietnam, uh, our comprehensive partnership with Vietnam is vitally important to the United States. I would argue that Vietnam is one of our most important partners uh, in, in the entire region. We have such uh, incredible potential uh, going forward. Uh, you know, when, when I uh, reflect on on my time serving as as American ambassador there, it truly was, um, uh, an amazing honor to be there it was so moving to be there because uh i always say that we have a future-oriented partnership with vietnam um that is focused on uh delivering results for our two countries peoples and i think we do that very well and here's another place where we're largely aligned on how we see the region and what kind of region we want uh to live in but um we also work on a daily basis to overcome some of the legacies uh, of our tragic past as well and it's quite meaningful to me quite moving to me that despite that tragic past and despite uh having fought a brutal war against one another today our work to overcome some of those uh legacies whether it's remediating unexploded ordnance or um uh dioxin and agent orange or treating people with disabilities or engaging in the humanitarian work to account for missing American service members into account for Vietnam's own war dead. Those those activities are deeply emotional, deeply uh, moving, and, and I think have helped contribute to this foundation of mutual and respect uh, and trust uh, on which our entire relationship is based today. Uh, and also, I you know, if, if you if you go back and think about uh, our future together and our very positive present, um, Uh, I think the Vietnamese are incredibly capable partners as well, very strategic, very practical. I often joke they live in a rough neighborhood Uh, and uh, I think their circumstances have forced them to be very clear strategic thinkers. Uh, What what I have always underscored to my friends in Hanoi and across Vietnam is that they can count on the United States of America and count on our commitment to our partnership with Vietnam uh, and to our commitment to peace and stability across the Indo-Pacific. It's a message that we send Course, to all of our friends and partners uh, across the region. But given my own experience there, uh, Vietnam will always be uh, you know, very special uh, to me personally. But you're, you're also right, one of our most important, most, incapable part, uh, most capable partners. And and I should hasten to add, really honored that the new Vietnamese Prime Minister, Pham Minh Ching, came to the US ASEAN Summit. And uh, he had a chance to uh, have a number of discussions with President Biden. Uh, I was privileged to attend Secretary Blinken's uh, uh, meeting with him as well. Uh, I'm as optimistic as I've ever been about the future of our partnership with Vietnam as well.
1: Well, in addition to being one of our most uh, accomplished diplomats, uh, ambassador to Vietnam, clearly one of the highlights, one of the milestones in the U.S.-Vietnam relationship was your Tet Rap. yes, (laughs) yes for those who don't know. I was wondering if know, I could
0: escape an interview without talking about that. Cannot escape
1: it. Um, we're <laughs> we're going to try to put some of that wrap up on the podcast. Those of you who don't know, please go YouTube it. Um, that's the type of public diplomacy I think we need. Are you going to do, do any more rapping now that you're Assistant Secretary of State?
0: I I think, Misha, I'm probably a one-hit wonder. Well, let me just say <laughs> something about that. That was so much fun to do. And, you know, I give all credit to my My team had a great colleague named Matt Ferentz, who was our public affairs officer at the time down in Ho Chi Minh City, and he conceived of the uh, the entire thing. And I was uh, I was merely the front person who was out there to to make it go forward. But I think um, I think it says a lot about the US Vietnam partnership that. Uh, the ambassador, the US ambassador to Vietnam at the time somehow thought it was a good idea uh, to do a rap video to celebrate the US-Vietnam partnership at the time of the Tet holiday and that we thought it would play well. And then it did play well. And Oh my gosh, did it exceed our expectations. And I think, you know, I was really moved by that. Um, I was surprised that anybody outside of Vietnam noticed. I still don't totally understand why it went viral for a while, but you may have some theories. But what I was most happy about is that I think our Vietnamese friends really appreciated it and really liked it because uh, I think they interpreted it for what it was, which was a, a signal of the great respect that we have for uh, Vietnamese people. And, and it says something about how far we've come uh, you know, in, in the four plus decades since the Vietnam War, that's for sure. And, and one other point that I would say as well, isn't it extraordinary that we chose to use rap as the medium to convey that message? I was so struck to find that uh, rap is wildly popular in Vietnam today. The United States of America is wildly popular. So are all aspects of our culture, including culture associated with rap and hip hop. We were, um, you know, the the whole video is a spoof uh, on the most popular, you know, rap battle show in Vietnam, and we got Wowie, who's Vietnam's most, probably most famous and popular rapper to join me in doing it. And so what I loved about it as well is that it, it celebrates something about, you know, the cultural links uh, between uh, the United States and Vietnam, and I think has opened up a whole new avenue for discussion. So my dream uh, would be, you know, now that COVID is opening up and we could travel, I would love to see us, you know, do something in this space. I would love to get some of America's, uh, you know, greatest rappers and hip heart, hip-hop artists to travel over there as well and vice versa. You know, my friend Wowie, who did that video with me, if I remember correctly, he told me he's never been to the United States. Oh, really? You know, he loves the, loves the United States, loves American culture, obviously was inspired by rap culture, but has never been here. But uh, anyway, uh, really, it was, it was fun to do, but we did it for a very serious purpose, we did it. Uh, to try to celebrate uh, our relationship, convey respect uh, to the Vietnamese. But I have to say, the response far exceeded our, our expectations. But I think, um, yeah, I think I'm a one hit wonder uh, in that regard. I'll see if my uh, public diplomacy colleagues have any more bright ideas for me in the region. But probably won't be wrapping too much uh, anymore uh, anytime soon.
1: No, oh, that, that's that's great. clearly uh, it shows your your you know your your touch, your human touch, out there. But as well in, in spending time with us today to go through all of this, uh, again, a busy time, new leadership, uh, top-level meetings, summits coming up uh, as, as we speak, uh, a, a full plate for you and your colleagues, um, uh, and uh, I think a lot of movement, uh, you know, still lots of concern over over way things are developing in, in certain areas, um, sure. but but really um, the, the, the commitments... Uh, seem to be, um, you know, building on one another in, in a way that uh, we're all, you know, waiting, watching, looking for capstone documents to understand uh, all of the clarity of thinking. Um, but clearly your, your ability to explain it all to us is, is extremely helpful and cover a lot of areas we usually don't get to on the podcast. So uh, Assistant Secretary of State Dan Crittenbrink, thank you so much for joining us today on The Pacific Century.
0: Misha, thank you. What an honor to spend time with you. Really impressed by um, uh, your questions. Really enjoyed our conversation. And again, um, I am very optimistic about our future in the Indo-Pacific, but we shouldn't underestimate uh, the scope of the challenges that we face uh, either. Uh, but to those who uh, sometimes question uh, our commitment and focus uh, on the Indo-Pacific, I would simply say one small example. Look at the fact that Secretary of State Antony Blinken Uh, spent a week in the Indo-Pacific in Australia and Fiji and in Hawaii meeting with our Japanese and Korean allies right on the eve of Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And and despite uh, the challenge posed uh, by the war in Ukraine and uh, Russia's ongoing brutality against the Russian people, you see the fact that the president hosted the U.S. ASEAN Summit here in Washington last week that he'll be in in Japan and Korea in in the coming week. And I think it shows we are going to remain laser focused on the Indo-Pacific going forward.
1: Well, again, uh, a a great summation, and we appreciate it. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Dan Crittenbrink, thanks so much for for joining us. Uh, For those of you who've been listening, thank you. This is Misha Oslin, and we'll see you next time on The Pacific Century.
0: Misha, thanks so much.